Welcome to episode 250 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast, our 250th episode, we're going to discuss designing a creative culture with guest Johan Sonnen, who is director of our studio, GoInvo. Johan, welcome to the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. As you can tell, Johan is excited to be here. So lots of companies try to create a design-centered culture. In fact, uh, in the past couple of years, bringing design in-house has been an important um, aspect of software design, especially. Uh, so you can have design, uh, you know, within your four walls, you can control it better. Uh, the insights can uh, affect other aspects of your company, et cetera, et cetera. So creating this uh, design culture, this culture for innovation has been an important uh, or, or needs to be an important part of what companies are doing around software design. Unfortunately, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, this doesn't really succeed and uh, you know the designers uh, can have sort of a, a, a difficult time. I think that we've uh, at our studio we've 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 had the opportunity to develop a culture here over the course of eight years, and there have been a few things that we've done uh, that have been successful, and we wanted to talk about those a little bit today. Or somewhat successful. Somewhat I mean, I successful. I would say they're varying edges of how successful or not they are? I think it's a very successful culture. The, the specifics of the tactics of what has worked and what has not, there's ups and downs. Uh, but I think the, it's a wonderful culture, actually. So so let's talk about one of the more more difficult aspects of the culture to, to start with. Um, and this is transparency, right? So openness uh, is an important part of how we do business here at the studio, Yuhan, when you first embarked on this, when you first said, okay, we want to have uh, transparency and flatness uh, and openness as a core tenant of our studio ethics, what, you know, what was on your mind and how did it play out over time? Well, I was born into open source in essence. I mean, it's, it's oozed through me, I think, uh, uh, as someone with parents who are who are academics as well, so and and one was uh, in high science where uh, you know your life was creating uh, things typically uh, that were open to other people, mm -hmm. whether it's papers, whether it's science, whether it's research. Mm -hmm. And the other side was you know my 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 mommy was a musician at Juilliard and and uh, her music and by performance it's open in essence, right? Those yeah. things are open and what they do were uh, open to the planet. And yeah. so I was sort of indoctrinated as a fetus, right? Yeah. And so it, it has just you know ever since I didn't necessarily. Uh, see it that way <laughs> up until probably my mid-20s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but I was born, you know, NCSA then, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, is a bit, one of the homes of the internet in which all the fundamental technologies there were open. Yeah. Right? And then when you're like, born, you know, again, it sounds weird, uh, at MIT and other places and at MITRE, and here it just felt natural. Um, and the seeds that your parents put in you as a child, not even intentionally. Right, unintentionally. Or, they they yeah. took you down paths that have, have sort of 
reinforced themselves and, and led this to be core to who you are. Yeah. And so I couldn't run away from it. I think yeah. it just was there. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you uh, live it perfectly, right? Yeah. Living it, it was something that you intellectually understand and professionally understand doesn't mean that you have to live it all the time. And that's where the, I think a depth switch for me came in is how do you design your life in order to better be uh, transparent? And that's not an easy task. Transparency is one of those things that sound good on paper, but it it seems almost um, impossible, right? I mean, uh, look, I mean, we're all wearing clothes here, for example, right? I mean, there's not complete, complete nakedness is not possible in, in a certain way. I mean, I just read an article today about the more that people talk to their coworkers about how much they make, the more all of them will end up making, which will have unintended negative consequences on businesses that go out of business, just for example, right? Um, so w where are the limits? You know, what, when you talk about transparency, uh, you know, there's there's opaque and there's transparent. Like, what does transparency really mean? Because it doesn't mean open access to everything always. Yeah, I think well, as the human condition is such and the way we as a species work doesn't mean that we always want everything to be open about us. Yeah. Emotionally, especially. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there are cultural little sub-tribes within even a small company like ours, yeah. right? And they have different uh, openness standards. Yeah. But there's a baseline, I think, that we have in introduced to say anything goes, and there is sort of a dyna dynamic where it's a self-modulating culture, yeah. right? Whereas, you know, we say, look, uh, financials, open for anyone to investigate at their own leisure. Here's the place to go to get it. Yeah. They can see it. Uh, Ta-da. Second is everyone knows everybody's salaries already, right? We, we make them together as someone new comes in. So you understand the latter already as sort of uh, uh, as, as the company evolves. But even using that example, uh, you know, if, if we give someone an out-of-cycle pay bump, it's not like an email sent to the whole company no. that Jane is now making this amount, right? It's not... It's not that explicit. Yeah, yeah they can, but th that'll be realized if anyone wanted to, right? It'll yeah. be realized in the documentation that's that's open every month. Yeah. But, you know, how many people actually do that? Very few. Very few. Right? I have trouble going in every month going, oh, what the hell is the business doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And then, uh, but so, but it is at least accessible. Yeah. And the action, the, the, the moment of the culture is such that it is available to everybody. Yeah. But yeah, there are nuances and little things that happen like daily. Yeah. That, you know, I, I am usually one of the, the main needles of the, how the company goes. Yeah. And I'm not privy to everything. That's fine. But a lot of it goes through me and I don't necessarily relay it either. Just of because, course, you yeah. know, limited bandwidth. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's tricky because then, then you look at it yourself and it's like, how open am I? Yeah. Uh, what am I keeping, right? I try not to be, but, uh, you know, inevitably there's something that uh, inexplicably happens that way. So we've talked about transparency being so specific to you, but beyond that, you have beliefs in transparency as sort of a, a general good, right? And so for other companies, for other leaders or managers who are thinking about transparency in their group or their organization, you know, how does this translate beyond a small company that you're the owner of and, and you can make all of the decisions and sort of impose that? How, how could this be adopted in larger, more complex organizations within someone's sort of more narrow field of view? Yeah, it's, you would have to graduate the transparency knob. Yeah. You can't go to a Nigel Tufnell, you know, 11 immediately because like it'll just, it would actually probably be way counter uh, in, uh, counter to actually doing good culture, 
Because if you swipe it open, yeah. all of a sudden the floodgates come open and then there are, there's a two, so many conversations, so many things that happen. So I think it has to be graduated. But there, there, the lessons for me, if I were to take this somewhere else, yeah. um, are one is uh, if most people really want to know how decisions are made. Yeah. Right, and to feel like they they're involved in how those are made. Yeah, uh, and then if they're even if there's bystanders, they have like they need a uh, some kind of pipeline in. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's first decision making. Yeah, as a group grope, uh-huh. uh, uh, as a that's probably not the best term, but like something that allows people to say, "Hey, I know what happens," yeah. or "I know how it's getting there." Yeah, yeah. Then there's a, at least you have a histogram into the decisions. Yeah. Without that, I think everything else, like, you know, is, is stuck to it. Yeah, I mean, we're really focusing on transparency, but what I think was really interesting in what you were just talking about is the transition needs to be designed and managed. Like, you can't just take, you know, read about best creative practices and dump them down because there'll be a lot of negative unintended consequences. You have to go from zero to one to two to three, not from zero to 11. Yeah. Um, not just in transparency, but in, in many of, of the pillars of making a healthy creative. Yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's something that, that, that we've done well here, that you've done well here, Yuhan, is creating these um, uh, endpoints, right? So transparency is the desired endpoint. It doesn't mean we get there all the time. It is the, the ideal, right? So that uh, the default is if we're making decisions, we're going to be transparent ab- about them. And then, of course, if they're sensitive for some reason or another, or the information shouldn't be shared or what have you, you can layer those uh, types of gates on top. But if you start with an open default and then close gates as needed, that's very different from starting with everything closed and then opening them as needed. So it's an opt-out strategy. Where, well, the hope is that you're hiring and, and bringing people in that are in that fold already, or at least does want that. Yeah. Um, it's almost like open source. The, tenet, the, the three tenets of open source are um, a license, you have some kind of uh, service level agreement of what you're distributing this under. Mm-hmm. You've got the code itself or the, the operating procedure yeah. uh, that's open, and you have community. It's very similar in business in some ways, right? Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. say that, hey, look, we have this kind of opt-in strategy where we're open, open, open. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you peel it depending on what happens. Yeah. So... Let's uh, let's shift now to to another one of the tenants that that help uh, drive the studio and and I think uh, you know this this one's something that I've really appreciated and that, and that's we do have a culture of continuous learning. So on our, our our website we we talk about learn, share, and build. And you know one of the things that new hires have to do is give a tech talk about some area that they are expert on, um, and you know share it with the group. And so we have all kinds of uh, different tech talks, whether it's about voice user interfaces or uh, standard health records or what have you. Every Friday we get together for a lunch and learn, and uh, you know that continuous learning is embedded in our culture all the way to the point that there are giant bookcases that sort of divide up the studio. And those are almost entirely full of books now. And when we started out, we had one giant bookcase. We built collecting dust. (laughs) So (laughs) who reads? So what was, 
what was the um, what was the impetus for this? Um, you know, this particular tenant, Yuhan. What was because uh, once again, this is not uh, this is this is slightly atypical. Uh, the 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 emphasis on continued learning. Well, I think it's. Uh maybe more in the R&D and academic setting that you see this more often. Yeah. At yeah. least that's, you know, where I see it most often and where I'm getting uh, poked from. Yeah. And again, it goes back to your own origin story. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and, and, and what we, and the kinds of, uh, some of the projects we work on are also in that realm. But it's, uh, because we're in healthcare as well, there are known studies <laughs> that say if you are learning across your uh, lifetime, one, I mean, there's obvious uh, biases towards, well, you learn more about health, you learn more about yourself and understanding the world. Yeah. But if you, uh, there's, a, there's a fantastic graph uh, in the study that says, as you keep learning, your brain keeps moving and learning other things, uh, your longevity is directly proportional to that learning in terms of the, the, how much you do. Hmm. So uh, if you're just a high school graduate, if you're just college, if you just stop after grad school, PhD, you know, it levels off after actually uh, four years or five years of uh, undergraduate or graduate level. But if you keep learning other ways, not a band cycle, other ways, uh, longitudinally your, your health and your life will get longer and better. Yeah. So I just think it's like it's sort of a natural uh, selection type of thing. I mean, bending natural selection. Yeah. By keeping your brain active. Also, it's just a matter of, oh, my God, they're, most of the people in the world are smarter than us. we got to bone up and, and just as a competition thing. Yeah, so, so obviously, the, you know, the continuous learning makes sense for us as individuals. But how does that translate into a creative culture? How does that translate into making the group healthier, making the organization better beyond just the one? Oh, that's a uh, – you'd think that would be an easy one to answer. Mm. It, it, it gets tricky. I think – Generally speaking, it's good for humans. One, you know, yeah. get your read on. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what is it? Thinkers read and readers think. Is that the Ralph Nader line? At least I have learned it from Makes him. sense. Something like that, yeah. right? Uh, uh, so there is something about having a tribal aspect to uh, slurping in new knowledge yeah. and trying things together. So in, other, in projects that we're doing now, uh, we have a fairly big project with five or six people on it. Uh, not only are we trying new technologies, we're also trying new techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's done by, okay, well, what are other people doing? How are they getting good results? What are the outcomes of those? And doing? And we need to read other studies. Mm -hmm. the, the, the mantra is the smarter people are always outside your firewall. The hell are they doing? Yeah. Right. <laughs> How are we soaking that up? Yeah. And so I think as a group, that resonance, you know, builds yeah. and it amplifies our work over time. That's the hope, at least. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then everyone. Another thing is that we do is we don't have restrictive agreements on what you can do outside of work. And I know a lot of big companies do because they're like, oh, we're going to own every part of your bloodstream. Yeah. Uh, we're going to own it. Because every idea, it's ours. Yeah. But learning comes from stuff you do outside of work. Sure. In your own work, whatever that is. Sure. So I think that's a, you know, a key thing is you learn from a lot of different ways. You need the, uh, you need, nature abhors, you know, uniculture, right? So you need people to flower and grow outside of the typical confines. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that's very distinctive about the studio is the studio space. So... You know, when the company started here in Boston almost 10 years ago now, God. it was just one giant square ballroom. Beautiful, huge, high ceilings. There was one room. There was a, a bathroom out in the hall that was 
used by other companies as or well. Or a plant. Or, or for you, of course, yes. the plant. Um, but, you know, that was happening during a time where open offices were, were trendy, uh, people were excited about. And so um, it, it was beautiful, but it also felt right and it felt correct in a certain way. Uh, as time has passed, the company's grown and we've gotten some other spaces beyond just the ballroom. But also the trend has changed away from open offices into more mixed or closed workspaces. What's also interesting is I've seen at least our people move from all just hanging out in the big space to going to the smaller spaces more and more as time goes on. And so I'm curious, what are your thoughts now about open workspaces and creative culture? And um, I'm, I'm guessing your thinking has transformed since originally moving into the space. Yeah, and, and thinking like this does change I think there's like these ten-year cycles to it, right? You think you think about uh, Bauhaus or po- you know pre-Bauhaus and yeah. the architect, the picture of the architects are you know in the one room together with basically one you know these lines of huge long desks. Oh, the Frank Lloyd Wright work. Yeah, yeah where yeah, you see like yeah. you know five five rows of like eight people on each row and things like that. Yeah, it's a little bit of like a, a designer's chop shop, right? <laughs> um, uh, and then you know they go into offices uh, and you see advertising in the '60s like that, right? Now, if you think about the the real estate, individual real estate has changed dramatically over the past 75 years for when, you know, we had a room like this, like an, a 10 by or 12 by 12 room for one human being yeah. in a white collar job like this, yeah. right, as a typical space. Yeah. That has shrunk by, I think it's like uh, down to three or four, three by four yeah. in a matter of 70 or 60 years. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty remarkable transformation of from these big private offices yeah. to small open. And I, I, you're right. My 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 thinking has migrated. I still love the open space. Yeah. Um, but I think people need diversity in how they want to achieve flow or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Not everyone can be concentrating perfectly, beautifully in an open uh, arena like that. Sure. Sure. See, so but you definitely see it. You're right. Uh, once we've gotten these four or five other rooms that are attached to the ballroom, some will migrate. Yeah. I like it, yeah. but that's you know every, humans are weird and funny, and they need that they need different things to be able to go into. Sure, sure. Yeah, the the ballroom gives us the opportunity to have that serendipitous interaction, learn something new, uh, encounter something that is outside of our project or outside of what we're working on. Uh, whereas the workspaces give us you know the time to focus on things and to and to concentrate or to achieve that flow state that, that you were mentioning, Yuhan. Mm-hmm. It's so nice that a ballroom when we first got here, it was wide, there was nothing in it. There were a couple plants, yeah. uh, a couple desks, and there were times when I was in there, I was like, uh, I remember when I was alone, it was like, um, you know, riding my bike. Yeah, I around. remember. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I yeah. took a video of myself. This is how busy we were at the time. <laughs> I took a video of me thinking about design, riding the bike around the studio like a fat bear on a tricycle. You know, uh, but it, it was fantastic for me at that point because I could really, I used the space yeah. to concentrate. Now it's different. You really explored the space. Oh, yes. That's what it was. <laughs> Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play, 
And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging tech, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at DMeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Yuhan? Oh, yes. It was lovely. It was amazing. 250 episodes. Uh, how many individuals? Can we count them on two fingers, three fingers? How can our uh, listeners get in touch with you? <laughs> they don't want to. I think that's clearly not right. now. But let's let's give them away anyway. Oh, oh, Twitter. Is that what it is? Whatever okay. you want. Yeah. Uh, J, because uh, it's my Twitter feed is so fat. J S O N I N. I'm sure I'm going to get lots of do. You know. Well, well, yeah. thankfully, Bouncy. thankfully, that's it for episode 250 of the Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Whee.